Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Laura Hales, and I'm here today with Bradley J. Kramer to talk about two books he wrote that may help us with our study of the Book of Mormon this year. Bradley J. Kramer holds an MA in English from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a BA in English from Brigham Young University with a minor in Near Eastern Studies. As the son of a Latter-day Saint mother and a non-member father, he has had a lifelong interest in interfaith dialogue. For the last several years, he's been a regular participant in Torah and Talmud classes at a local synagogue in Durham, North Carolina, and has helped arrange joint Mormon-Jewish study sessions and other educational exchanges. He is the author of Beholding the Tree of Life, a rabbinic approach to the Book of Mormon, and recently, Gathered in One, How the Book of Mormon Counters Anti-Semitism in the New Testament. Welcome, Bradley. In your bio, it mentions that you are involved in interfaith dialogue. How did you become so conversant in rabbinical studies? I'm glad you said conversant. I've tried to read as many books as I could and go to Torah and Talmud sessions in, in the, for over a decade in, in North Carolina. And basically every other Jewish event or ceremony or ritual or service that I've gone to. But I've known some people who have devoted their entire lives to studying rabbinic literature. And I'm very much dependent on them. I'm not of their caliber, but I've tried to learn from them. Can we go back a little bit and maybe talk about who the rabbinic Jews were and what was their approach to scripture study? Well, they exist today, rabbinic Jews, and basically a rabbinic Jew is someone whose religion is based on the Talmudic rabbis. The Talmudic rabbis are the people who basically tried to rescue Judaism after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, They established uh, academies and other places and tried to preserve all the knowledge and practices and the wisdom that they'd acquired over the years during this catastrophic time. And convey it to the next generation. Later on, about 200 uh, AD, it was then their, their oral tradition that they had was written down and, and formed the Mishnah, and later on had commentaries that add to it that generally formed the Talmud. Any Jewish tradition or Jewish person who is uh, somehow reverences or is based upon the, the Talmud is a rabbinic Jew. And the major achievement of these Jews was to create a Judaism without the temple. It didn't uh, exist anymore. So they replaced temple worship with scripture study, uh, rigorous uh, scripture study, and prayer. And that's basically the the beginnings of, of most of the modern Jewish movements that we have today. You mentioned that there are still rabbinic Jews today. But there are lots of sects of Judaism and lots of ways to practice being a Jew. Is the rabbinic approach still relevant in modern Judaism? Uh, Sure, very much so. I mean, Orthodox Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews hold this uh, rabbinic tradition, this um, the, the Talmud and the oral tradition that it talks about, as more or less canonized. This, this is the word of God to them just as much as the Torah, the five books of Moses. 
uh, the other uh, movements, uh, reform, conservative, even to some degree humanist, uh, still consult the Talmud, want to know about it. They think it's not authoritative, but it's worthwhile and it's part of their tradition. And they use many of the, of the techniques uh, with this as well. I mean, especially they use the technique of, of rigorous scripture study, of taking it very seriously. I, again, for the more liberal Jews, it's not the word of God, but it's, it's, there's wisdom in every word that they need to somehow dig out and learn from in this way too. So in some ways, it's all it, the rabbinic tradition lives on in all forms of Judaism, as far as I can tell. Now, you wrote this book, Beholding the Tree of Life, a rabbinical approach to the Book of Mormon. When did you get the idea that the Book of Mormon was well-suited for rabbinic-style study? Uh, when I started learning more about it, um, the rabbinic approach is essentially very in, an intense literary approach. You're looking at everything in the, in the, uh, in the scriptures, um, not just for uh, a few quotations or the wisdom in it, but how it's, how it's framed, the words, even the, even the shape of the words. And this resonated with me because my, my degrees and study has been in English and in literature. And I was very fortunate to work with uh, Richard Dilworth Rust in North Carolina. He's a professor of, or was a professor of English at UNC in Chapel Hill. And he studied the literary qualities of the Book of Mormon and eventually wrote a book called Feasting on the Word. And he was my uh, uh, thesis advisor, and we became close, and he really opened up the whole world of the literary aspects of the Book of Mormon to me. And so when I came across uh, and started learning more about the, the Jewish approach, that connected with what I had learned about the Book of Mormon, and I thought this, this would work very well for the Book of Mormon. Since Jack Welch identified chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, there's been a whole bunch of academic study about ancient literary techniques that were used by Book of Mormon writers. Would ancient writers such as those represented by Nephi and Mormon use the rabbinic approach to form their messages? I don't think explicitly. The rabbinic approach, as I said, happens or really is formalized after the destruction of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. So it's a you know, first century or second century kind of phenomenon, although it, it reflects traditions that have been before that. Um, so I don't think that, uh, that, that Nephi and Mormon explicitly and purposely use these techniques or put them into the Book of Mormon. In many ways, they represent uh, universal uh, literary approaches, especially to scriptures. These, these Talmudic rabbis uh, more or less pulled these principles out of their intense study of the Hebrew scriptures. And Book of Mormon as a scripture is very much aligned to the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures as well. So I, I, they, I think they're certainly valid and they work very well. And Nephi may have employed some of these things in his own interpretation. But as far as like knowing the Hebrew terms or explicitly studying them, I really don't believe that that's true. Yeah, I thought the answer would be a, a decisive no because it, it postdates when they supposedly were writing. Is, am I correct? Without a doubt, at least by 600 years or something like that. But see, they're, they're getting these principles out of the, out of the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. And the Hebrew Scriptures form this wonderful, especially in the beginning, form this wonderful narrative of a people where you have 
uh, characters and settings and people change and develop over time and allusions to to other things that are said. And the Book of Mormon, since it's a coherent narrative, really uh, is is very much uh, similar to the, the, these Hebrew scriptures. And so these these narrative techniques, these the literary te techniques, seem to work very well for the Book of Mormon. So you gentle us into this rabbinic approach. You introduce your framework by differentiating between the fruit and the tree in scripture study. What do these images represent for you? Okay. I don't think those were purposely used as an explanation of how to approach the scriptures, but they seem to fit very well. Uh, I contrast the rabbinic approach with a quotation-centered or quotation-oriented approach which we employ quite a bit. And the quotation-centered uh, approach would be basically you're just, you're just gleaning the scriptures, looking for some little gem of a quotation that you can then uh, use to, um, in a talk, uh, uh, an inspirational message of something of this sort. Whereas, um, again, the rabbinic approach is much more holistic. You're looking at, at not only the quotation, but the context and who said it and what, how it's used throughout the book. Again, a very literary sort of thing. And it seemed to me that uh, Lehi's dream, it's kind of like a, the, uh, a quotation approach. He's, he's seeing the tree and he's mostly concerned about the fruit and then plucking fr this, this fruit from the tree and then sharing with, with others. This seems very much similar to what we do with the quotation. We're looking for one little delicious bit of quotation and sharing it with other people. Nephi's vision, it's interesting that he never really approaches the tree or partakes of it or shares it with other people. He's more interested in what's the tree altogether what's, and, and the meaning of what it is around him and the, the various objects. And his vision is expanded into uh, kind of cosmic, uh, apocalyptic proportions. And so it's, it's the difference between plucking a little, little gem of, uh, of a meme and, and sharing it with others versus continually appreciating the holistic message and the many different messages of the, of the larger experience. Why does the quotation approach not do justice to the Book of Mormon? Well, again, there's lots of value in the quotation approach. I taught seminary, and we had scripture masteries, which was very helpful for freshmen in high school and when they're beginning to, to, to learn the scriptures. And it's very helpful to have these things on our walls or sensors. So it's certainly of worth, but there's much more to the Book of Mormon than that. For instance, the, the, the famous quotation from King Benjamin, uh, when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. A tremendously powerful, very moving, very um, insightful uh, quotation. But it's much more if you think about it in literary terms and in the context. I mean, number one, this comes from a king. It's an example of someone who is a high status and could be someone who has, you know, all the power is coming to him. But even, even in this, in this uh, kingly position, he's, his object is to serve the people. And it gives examples of how he does it. And he, uh, he wields the sword in defense of his people personally. He works, uh, labors with his own hands. He tries not to tax the people. Uh, he doesn't, he says, put, him, put them in prison. He does everything he can not to afflict his people. But he also uh, teaches them uh, righteous principles and leads them uh, to a greater spirituality and righteousness. This is, he's almost a, a walking example of what this really means. Uh, and, 
and it's an extreme example because it's someone who is in, in, in such a, a high position and that even he would try to serve the common man is, is very, very moving. When you were rehearsing that to me, I thought it's almost like he said, look, I'm the king, but everything that comes with that, that's not what's giving me joy or what's important. What's important is doing just what you can do with all, you know, in your, you don't have to be king to achieve joy and do what you're supposed to do. Sure. It's just and, being in the service of your fellow man. And the fact that he would do it. I mean, here's, yes. here's someone who... You know, kings traditionally can be tyrannical. All the power flows to them. The people serve the king, and he's turning it all on its head. And if I if I see myself as a servant, a servant you all as a servant king, then uh, you should all be that way as well. So the the fact of who gives this statement is tremendously important and uh, amplifies and explains its its meaning. But also just the context of when it was given. This is a coronation ceremony where he's basically passing on the kingship to his son, Mosiah. And Mosiah then becomes a very similar king, as someone, a servant king who's devoted to his people. But he, uh, Mosiah is so um, convinced of this principle that when there's trouble in the, in the end of his, his reign of passing it on to his, his children, he basically renounces the whole kingly uh, setup uh, that he, he'll go to a system of judges also that he can serve the people can be served even better. So he's he's so committed that this you know could be something to pass on to another relative, and they could live in great lavishness and 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 luxury and these sorts of things. And he's willing to give that up because he's so convinced of his father's statement that your the service of your your fellow man is is an act of God. So you put this in context, and it's just then the then the, the the power and the meaning and the significance of the statement i think just only grows and grows you quote the words of first nephi 11:1 1, to point to the way nephi suggests we study the scriptures could you review that scripture with us and then explain to us what you think he tells us about scripture study and how second how it is similar to the, what the jewish sages advocate in the rabbinical approach? Uh, sure. I'll, I guess I'll just read the whole verse. For it came to pass, after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen, and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me, as I sat pondering in mine heart, I was caught away in the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain, which I never had before seen, and upon which I never had before set my foot. Some of these things are, are quite interesting to me. I won't push this too much, but the fact that he sits, these academies were called yeshiva or yeshivot, and that means some place to sit. So I, I'm not pushing that as a, something that's really quite significant, but it's interesting to me. The main part is that he sat pondering in his heart. And I think, again, that's, that's a certain, a, a lot of mental effort, of maybe a lot of time, uh, a lot of uh, spiritual energy expended in this, and these are these are very central, I believe, to a to a rabbinic approach. There's in the uh, in, in the well, it's called the Ethics of the Fathers. It's in the Mishnah. There's a saying that is regarding the Torah that says, "Turn it and turn it over again, for everything is in it, and contemplate it, and wax gray and old over it, and stir not from it, for thou hast no better rule than this." This idea that you're continually looking at the, at the scriptures and turning them over in your mind, thinking about them for, for years, for decades. 
I try to uh, deal with many of these concepts in my book because some of the principles would involve that the scriptures require sustained mental effort in order to be understood. Nephi certainly exemplifies that. The scriptures should be read closely and everything about them should be pondered and thoroughly considered. Again, the idea of pondering, of really looking at it very closely, taking your time with it. The scriptures should be read deeply on several levels and from many perspectives. And finally, the scripture study ultimately is not about information. It is an experience with God, a relational experience. And that's certainly what happens with Nephi. Not only does he spend a lot of time pondering the scriptures, considering them, uh, working them over and over in mind, but it leads to a, a vision, an actual experience with the divine, which I think uh, is certainly probably grander than many of us will experience, but the same thing can happen to us in, in maybe a, a little less spectacular, but just as meaningful ways. I love that. How does the rabbinic approach encourage reading on multiple levels? Again, getting beyond this quotation approach to right. scripture study. And, that, and that's maybe an implication of the quotation. that There's one meaning to every scripture. And the idea is that there's many different meanings and on many levels and approaches of these sorts of things. And the they concentrate a pr primarily on four different levels, which are, they have an acronym for this called pardes. And pardes is a, a word that means uh, orchard, which is very appropriate to the idea of, a, of again, beholding the tree of life. It's a, it's a, a, you're entering, in a sense, to back into the Garden of Eden in some ways. So uh, the, the P, R, and D, S remind us of some of these levels. The first level is called Peshat, and it's the literal level, the plain level, the, uh, the simple level, what the text actually says. The second level is called Remez, which is more the allegorical level what the text represents, the ideas, the principles, and truths that these things uh, exemplify. And drash is another level, a sermonic level, the, the, what's your takeaway? What's, what's the lesson for me today? Uh, how does this apply to my real life? How would you use this in a sermon in, in many ways? And the third is called sod, which is the mystical level. And this is traditionally the level of gematria, where you make... Uh, where certain Jews would, would use the numbers, uh, the letters as numbers and find meaning in that. And you don't get much of that in the Book of Mormon. I haven't figured out a numerical way of approaching it this way. But it's, it's a mystical one that, that uh, requires or uh, promotes a, a direct con communication, a direct connection, a direct experience with, uh, with the divine and those sorts of things. And I, I can see these things not only in the, in the Book of Mormon, but uh, in some ways promoted by the Book of Mormon. So how do these levels work together in our study? You'd think, first of all, that this, this simple or plain meaning is kind of an elementary. Once you master that, you can go to the other levels. But it's really the, um, the foundation of everything else. Uh, these, this rabbinical approach pays great attention to each detail of that, and so it's the foundation. You can't have an allegorical approach without making sure it's closely tied to the text as, as with the other ones. So they all really uh, work together in many ways. They're dependent upon each other. And one way of, of looking this through a Book of Mormon example is that early on in the Book of Mormon, you have people mocking Lehi. You have him going to a river. There they have a, a, an area where there's seeds of all kinds, presumably fruit. Laman and Lemuel resist their father at this point. They're, they're murmuring. There's a rod involved early on, and 
Nephi earlier enters Jerusalem at night in the dark. That's kind of the plain message in these all become allegorical elements in Lehi's dream. The pointing of the fingers to his father essentially become the great and spacious building where people point fingers at him and it's the pride of the world. The river that they are next to is a great divide between the righteous and the, and the, and the, and the wicked. Uh, the fruit is the love of God and so forth. You even have Laman and Lemuel, instead of just murmuring, they're actually wandering and not seeing what he's going on. Uh, so that would be the, the, the plain level and the allegorical level. In the mystical level, Nephi wants to know the interpretation of his, of his father's dream. So he's getting the interpretation of this allegory that Lehi has gone through. But there it takes on, again, another meaning because of this direct communication with God. And it, it expands into a really an apocalyptic vision. The, the, the great and abominable ch- uh, church is, is essentially the same thing as the, uh, the great and spacious building. The fruit now it becomes a vision of Jesus' mortal ministry and his atonement. The river becomes the oceans that divide his people from the, from the Gentiles. Um, darkness, um, which was the, the mists of darkness, the temptations of the devil, is now something that, that covers over his people and, and it has a great apostasy in some ways. And then, at, so the, you've got the three different levels there. And then after Nephi's vision, he comes across his brothers disputing on what his father saw and what's the meaning of it. And he then explains these things, but it's coupled with a sermon where how they need to heed the word of God, not be filthy and wickedness and that sort of thing. So even with these, these, uh, these elements, you can kind of see how there's a plain and simple meaning, an allegorical meaning, a sermonic meaning, and a mystical meaning. Now, as a listener, your head may be swimming. I can assure you, as I was reading the book, at this point, my head was swimming as well. But well, that's a great compliment. <laughs> no, I was going to say, but as I went through the book and I saw the deep meanings that you were finding in the the stories, in the narrative, in the teachings that I had not noticed before, I thought he's got something here. The proof is in the pudding because he's taken this rabbinic approach to studying the scriptures and he's found treasures that I never have been able to uncover. So stick with us as we continue to talk about maybe a complicated way of studying the scriptures, but one that reaps great benefits. Well, I well, I hope so, because I mean, the things that I've come up with and how I apply these principles to the Book of Mormon are not supposed to be the final word of what's in the Book of Mormon. They're mostly just examples. I hope this book is almost like a how-to book. It'll open your eyes to some of the techniques and I fully expect that the readers of this book will find many more treasures in the Book of Mormon than I have at, at any point. I hope they, their vision eclipses mine. So, But it, it, is a, it is a book that you have to take your time with, that's for sure. Yes, I've read it a couple of times and, and written in the margins. <laughs> you know, it, it helps you to remember, okay, and even make a cheat sheet of the four approaches and, and the four levels. And I do use Hebrew terms in there uh, for several reasons. For one, I like them. I think they're cool. Uh, it also helps in any sort of discussion with Jewish people to know these, these different terms. And as, as a result, I put a, um, a glossary in the back of the book that could help you. I, I know one friend of mine had her thumb in the, in the glossary the whole time through the book. What better way to gain respect in a conversation about respective religions than to use the correct vocabulary? And it's very unifying, too. 
You also shared some rabbinical keys outlined by Rabbi Bonshek for studying the scriptures productively. What are those keys? Okay, uh, he actually simplified. These things are not really laid out as uh, per se in the in the Talmud, but they're inherent in the way that they treat scriptures. And he tried to simplify it for his audience, which are mostly Jews. And since I bought the book, I can benefit from them as well. One of the central principles, though, in this close reading is to pay attention to things that might seem, I guess, problematic, something that catches your attention. Other people like myself, you come across something that doesn't make any sense and I would skip over it. They make a point that they call these kotzim, or rabbis call them kotzim, or thorns, thorns from the tree of life that are kind of actually reaching out and snagging your attention. And they may not make sense, or they may present problems, but that perhaps is a way of the divine catching your attention and meaning you need to ponder this sort of thing. And he suggests several areas of the scriptures. It was the Torah for him, but for the Book of Mormon for us as well, to really pay attention. Uh, One of these are opening sentences. Rabbinic Jews typically divide the the, the Torah up into sections so that they can complete the whole Torah reading in one year. And each one of these um, sections is called a parasha or a portion. And he says, look at the beginning of that portion and see how it connects to the rest of the, of, the, of the scripture reading. And there's particular fruit in that. We don't really have that with the Book of Mormon. So I've concentrated on the opening sentences, maybe the first verse or two of each, uh, of each book. Uh, Nephi or First Nephi or Jacob or something like that. The other is the, the contiguity principle. This is basically read things in context. Uh, again, with King Benjamin, not only reading that statement, but reading around it to see what kind of information and explanation you can get from that. They're concentrating on similarities between different texts, differences between similar texts, especially repetitions and seeming redundancies, as well as word order, things that are in a series that might seem to jumble around from place to place, and perhaps there's meaning in that switching around, uh, an, an emphasis on, on one word or a not, or another, or uh, a priority of something of that sort. So those are the those are the basic ones that he talks about. Do you give some wonderful examples of that as well in the book? One that sticks out to me is how the writers of the Book of Mormon tied what was happening in their current situation to what they knew happened in the Old Testament books and times that they had come from. So this comes through in their relationship with kings and prophets. And so they take that relationship and they say, okay, this happened here, this is happening now, and this will happen in the future. You want to speak more to that? Well, you certainly see that with Nephi. When he's having trouble with the uh, getting the plates, he likens himself to Moses and Israelites. So that's ver- very much that um, uh, sermonic sort of a point of view. What what can I learn from my pr- present lesson? Even this whole idea of likening it unto himself. So he's an, that's an example of likening. And he certainly reads Isaiah to us with his people and also to us, you can liken yourselves to that because you are also a remnant of Israel and you are you're involved in that sort of thing. So this whole idea, I think, of likening is very much part of this, uh, the sermonic level uh, in, in, within the Book of Mormon. 
You had an interesting chapter on another important element of scripture study. It dealt with how we can learn more by discussing scripture with others. On a general surface level, how does the rabbinic approach differ from the traditional Latter-day Saint approach? <laughs> well, the difference is probably described best by the difference in my Torah classes and its typical gospel doctrine class. I've been in gospel doctrine classes where we've covered, supposedly covered, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers all in half an hour. Staggering. Yeah, yeah. You just because that's that's all the time that's in the manual. There you go. We take a very much, you know. And let's not stop to discuss anything because we need to finish we, we this to by finish the this end sort of, of the hour. For for these for these uh, Torah classes especially, we would just start from where we were, and re, the way it was done originally with the first rabbi study, we, we would someone would would read it in Hebrew as best he or she could. We would read the translation and then just discuss it. And these discussions, uh, it was an hour and a half, and this was in Leviticus, by the way. We were lucky to get through five verses in an hour and a half because we're, we're looking at this in so many different angles. I mean, you know, you did read the Hebrew, so people are naturally consider, uh, concerned about what the Hebrew actually says and talk to the rabbi about that. But there were implications to the political situation, what was going on in the synagogue, people's personal experience, how they've changed with this sort. And, and everyone was invited and encouraged to contribute their, their point of view. So it was a very much a kind of a very slow approach, very, very different from our gospel doctrine class. Lots of discussion and lots and lots of different points of view. And I think that's kind of fundamental to the way um, the rabbinic approach is. Uh, there are various rabbis who basically uh, forbid people from studying the scriptures by themselves. There's an idea that you really need other points of view and you need this. You need other people to show them to you. And that's probably the bedrock of what we have grown up doing is personal scripture study. But there's also another important element to the rabbinic approach. Well, there's a tremendous value in personal scripture study by yourself, but the, there is the idea that not only do you need other people to um, provide other insights and sometimes even challenge what you're saying. Does this really make sense to help you think through it? But there is a very definite belief in the rabbinic approach that, again, this is not fundamentally about information. It's about relations. You're, you're, you're learning more about the mind and will and love of God by studying this, but you're also coming closer to another person. So you're, in, to their thing, you're kind of wasting the experience if you do it just by yourself. You can become closer to another person in a very fundamental spiritual way by studying with that person. That is really interesting because it is intimate when you discuss scripture and insights with them. Which, which is kind of interesting because I, I've been able to employ this approach in, a, in, a, in, a, in an institute class. And we set up these these pairings. And in, and in Hebrew, this is called chavrutot. Chaver is the, the word for friend. And I kind of set these up and I discovered that it is intimate, and there were some of these singles that, that did not want to be intimate. I was going to say, person. yeah, I was going to say it really makes you vulnerable. Oh, and, I, I and believe to, so. Yeah, to be in that kind of position, to I mean, how how much more intimate can you get than how do you feel about the scripture? Yeah, it, it, what do so you, it worked well with those who could, could yeah, were friends. Yeah. They could do this sort of thing, but there was in one place where this 
this uh, young man was really interested in this young young uh-huh. woman, and she wasn't interested in him. So <laughs> she actually went to another class after that. I'm afraid. <laughs> but there's an important statement, I guess, in, even in in the Talmud about this, and it says, and this, this resonates with some things that we know about from the New Testament, that when two individuals are engaged in Torah study, the Shekhinah or God's in, imminent presence which is something kind of like the Holy Ghost is between them. This is this is one of their one of their teachings that you have this kind of spiritual experience between the two, and that's another reason for studying uh, with another person with another with another group. You're you're bringing people together, and that's what the scriptures do. Just to take this to a practical level, because sometimes we talk about grand concepts, and it's hard to put them into practice. Can you share a time? when you've sat down with a study buddy and looked at the Book of Mormon and maybe share some of the insights you gleaned just from that process? Okay, sure. Many of these, I think, are not really uh, resolved at this point, but it was amazing to me how we came up with really close questions of what's going on. I, just a few days, was with my friend Richard Rust. There's a number of things about Third Nephi 3 where you know the whole process of going to see Laban was very interesting to me. And just some little things that just caught our attention that we discussed is that Lehi, for instance, commands Nephi to go to the house of Laban and seek the records and bring them down hither to the wilderness. We just discussed why the word seek is this, I mean, you expect it to be bring the records or obtain the records or something like that. Did he somehow prophetically know that it would take a certain amount of effort to find the way and he didn't know what the way was? Or is it is it a somehow a a, a prophetic uh, discussion of what you're going to do with the records that will seek me- meaning in the records. Just that one little word really caught our attention. And then some simple things like then, uh, thy, Lehi says, thy brothers murmur, saying it is a hard thing which I have required of them. We discussed why it would be a hard thing. They didn't seem to have so much of a problem of going into the wilderness, of, of putting their tents on their camels and going there, did they somehow know something about uh, Laban? Did they have a previous relationship? Did they have a previous bad relationship? Uh, and Laban, since his genealogy is similar to to um, Lehi's, and they Nephi knew of his voice, were they closely related? Did they, you know, these sorts of things? Uh, there are just so many little little uh, tiny little things that that generated uh, over probably two hours of discussion in this in this. Um, uh, verse even why why did Laban uh, call uh, uh, Laman a robber immediately uh, why not a thief he didn't do anything to merit either one of those things why did he jump to that conclusion is there something about his relationship with them that he thought this his family robbed him in some way or is this a reflection of something he did that he's now projecting on those sorts of things it's just amazing what, what you can find in just a very few few verses that yield uh, maybe not firm conclusions because we're still pondering these things, but they're really intriguing questions and I think have uh, merit uh, in our personal lives and, and just in engaging the scriptures. You mentioned the concept of having scriptural commentators. Can you explain that concept a little bit more fully and talk about how the Book of Mormon authors function as scriptural commentators? Sure. I think oftentimes we think of commentators as now you're you're giving me the word, you're telling me what's going on. It's kind of a um, top-down sort of sort of approach. Um, 
rabbinic Jews typically have all sorts of commentaries. Their their Talmud is basically you've got a, a, a little block of the of the Mishnah and it's surrounded by another block of the Gemara, which is a commentary or discussion having to do with that. And then all around it in smaller text are discussions, commentaries from later uh, medieval commentators like Rashi or uh, Maimonides or someone like that. Even in their even in their scriptures in their Torah, they, it's arranged similarly where you've got you know, it's right there basically in your face what other other people are saying about this. But it, it's, again, not something that's saying this is the final answer. They're more examples of how you would approach the scriptures. And in fact, these commentators are almost like <laughs> long gone study partners, like you would have one physically in front of you. Where these are people from the past who are also kind of your study partners. And they're, they're bringing in points of view and you can argue with them and discuss it with them as well. Um, we don't exactly have that, cer certainly as the, the book is not laid out in a similar way in the Book of Mormon, but Mormon as the author, I think, very much functions as a commentator. We have various times in, in there where he says, and thus we see. You could say that this is the ultimate lesson, but I really think this is more of an example of something we can learn from something he's, he's talked about. This is a, a possible sermonic meaning. Uh, for instance, he talks about with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's where they uh, renounce murder altogether and then basically uh, more or less sacrifice themselves to their ongoing brethren. And then their brethren are, uh, are, are many of them are con converted when they uh, relent and stop attacking the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. He says, and thus we see that the Lord worketh in many ways to the salvation of his people. Well, obviously, there are many, many more lessons than that, than that one single one. That's an important one. But as a commentator, he's kind of showing you this is how you approach the scripture, this incident. And this is a way you can get a lesson from it so you can get many, many more. Because he goes on talking about this afterwards. And I think early on, Nephi is almost like one of those study buddies because he's, he's, you get to know him very well. You get to know his... his um, faults and failings and you see how he grows and his concerns and he's he's almost to me like a friend that stands that's nearby that I, I he i see his wisdom i see his encouragement i see what he learns from it and to me there's almost a, a kind of a a dialogue going on between me and, and nephi too so i i see these things that are again not purposely put in the book of mormon i don't think in a rabbinic way but they're they're there your book is divided into two parts. The first part gives us some tools to using the rabbinic approach in our study of the scriptures. We've been taught in conference, in Sunday school, in Relief Society to rely on the Holy Ghost in our scripture study. What do you feel like the relationship is between these two approaches to scripture study? Well, I think it's very complimentary. I mean, we talked about studying with another person and even studying with uh, with, with uh, commentators and that sort of thing. Well, to me, the Holy Ghost is the ultimate uh, scripture buddy. And you, I mean, even even according to the, the, the Talmudic approach, there's really three people involved in this. They call them the Shekhinah. We would call it the Holy Ghost involved in that. So the Holy Ghost is also um helping us understand and uh, relate and um, apply the, the points in the Book of Mormon. In fact, now that I think about it, you get in um, Nephi's vision. He has, he has a guide along the way. He has this angel. It's also called the Spirit of the Lord. could be like the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost oftentimes just shows him things and says, well, what do you think about this? What do you see? Do you know the meaning of this? And I think in many ways that's how the Holy Ghost functions in this 
uh, in this in this uh, experience, not only pointing out things that we should pay attention to and kind of say, well, what do you think about this? Well, that's a good idea. I don't know. How about this sort of point of view? So I, I, I feel it's very much a, a dialogue um, with the Holy Ghost that, that also functions with, with, a, with a partner because sometimes the, something the partner said is, will really hit you as this is very inspired or give rise to other, other uh, ideas. So to me, it's very, very consistent. The Holy, you know, we talked about a chavruta. The um, Holy Ghost to me is the ultimate chavruta study buddy. I would hate to have people think that it has to be either or. I think, like you said, it's complementary. Nobody ever said, just rely on the Holy Ghost. You can't create something from nothing. Sometimes I sit down there and I wait to get some great revelation from what I'm reading, and it just seems like a story to me. But as I'm reading other insights that people have gleaned from that same bunch of scripture that I think, well, this doesn't even apply to my life. How, how is this going to help me? Um, it helps the Holy Ghost work to have additional information. Sure. And I think that's, that's something about how a partner works, because I probably true of other people is true of me that I get into grooves as I'm reading the scripture. I'm, I'm reading them and I'm remembering what I thought before. And I'm just kind of going down the same path. If someone else is discussing it, they can give me insight, but they can also uh, present some problems, some things that I want to think about, and the Holy Ghost, I think, can work in that way, too. In the second part of your book, you move from talking about fruit and trees to roots and branches. And I think it's fun that you use this imagery, because that is common imagery used in biblical scripture. How does this additional imagery describe the importance of studying underlying biblical allusions in Book of Mormon writings? Okay, because in many ways the branches are the extensions of the, of these roots. The, the things that we're talking about are things that rabbis and maybe we have learned from our study of the scriptures that can apply to the, the Book of Mormon. The Hebrew scriptures are really the roots, the foundation of basically all Jewish and Christian scripture. They're the ones that talk about the Abrahamic covenant, introduce the Mosaic mission, Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthood, even the Messiah in the, in the Messianic era. So the Book of Mormon, I think, actually engages these roots in a very uh, intimate and, and complex and fruitful way. And as I point out, it's maybe too complex to, to really uh, deal with in this discussion, but if they'd read the book, they could figure this out. But basically it shows how there are, there are points that are made in, in the Hebrew scriptures that the Book of Mormon very much reinforces. There are situa- uh, situations which are more or less academic that don't really apply to us anymore, things regarding the um, maybe kingship or the temple, that it shows how to make an academic point applicable. There are ways of, of it translates an ancient situation into modern terms, uh, things where it increases the significance of the situation and also uh, one of the very important ways of all scripture relating to the uh, Hebrew scriptures is uh, providing prophetic hope. So there's a chapter on each one of these and how the Book of Mormon uh, does this with the Hebrew scriptures. I actually like that you broke it up into two parts. To me, the second part is the so what. This is why this is important to look at the scriptures in this way. So thank you. I want to go to a a place in your book in the chapter Increasing Significance where you talk about the place in 3 Nephi chapters 19 through 20 
where Christ is talking to the people and he's talking about the law of Moses being fulfilled. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Behold, I am he that gave the law, and I am he who covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore, the law in me is fulfilled, for I have come to fulfill the law, therefore it hath an end. Behold, I do not destroy the prophets, for as many as have been fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. And because I said unto you that old things have passed away, I do not destroy that which hath been spoken concerning things which are to come. For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled, but the law which was given unto Moses hath an end in me. Now we use this quite often in our discussions of doctrine in Latter-day Saint conversations to intimate that Christ has said that the law of Moses has been fulfilled and it's done away. Now using the rabbinic approach to scripture study, tell me what additional insights you've gleaned from the scripture passage. Well, first of all, it's significant that it says that, um, well, he basically says not everything has been fulfilled. He still has things to do. And the covenant, especially with Israel, has not been fulfilled. I think that's extremely important because sometimes we think of the law of Moses being fulfilled. The law of Moses was part of the covenant of Israel with the Lord. If that's no longer, uh, or if that has been fulfilled, then, then that, the Jewish connection with God has been somehow dismissed or dissolved, which is certainly not true. So Book of Mormon again and again asserts that the Jews are the covenant people of the, of the Lord. The other thing is you, you see this really the idea of um, the law of Moses being uh, fulfilled in verse 19, and he shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And then he goes into the idea of sacrificing a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Well, because we have glossed over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and, and don't really know much about it, we think that, that's, that the sacrifices and the blood offerings are all that the law of Moses involves. There are certainly the ethical commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, which uh, no one, including Jesus, because uh, he, he reass- uh, reaffirms them, believes that they've been um, fulfilled. And there are the other commandments uh, of loving thy neighbor as thyself, loving the Lord with thy, all thy heart, even opening up thy hand unto the poor. These sorts of things we would not say are fulfilled. So the ethical commandments have not been done away with. A Sabbath law has not been done away with. Uh, for us, Latter-day Saints, we would say at least the idea of kosher laws has not been done away with. We still have dietary laws in, in, in our canon. And uh, I, I honestly believe that there's a lot of the, a lot of the festivals, that those things have not been done away with. So I think he's really concentrating especially on the idea that, that these blood sacrifices, offering up sheep and goats, in the temple uh, and and putting the blood in various parts to sanctify the temple that's no longer longer needed that sacrifice has been accepted and that now jesus has taken care of it but there's much much more to the law of moses which remains in effect and there i think always will these are these are eternal principles so that's great and thanks for that additional explanation in the introduction i promised that we would talk about two books 
But before we leave this book, I want to say I thought it was beautifully written. You have a wonderful talent for writing. I feel like it's a book that I can't read just once, mostly because there's so much information in there. I just can't absorb it on one reading. It's a book I will continue to go back to. But it lays the foundation for your next book, which is really fun. But in this book, you start your introduction by saying, it took you 20 years to write this book, which fascinated me. That's probably why it is so well written is that it took you 20 years. But I was curious when I read that, I thought, at what point in his scripture study and using this rabbinic approach did he say, hey, I have a book here. You want to speak to that? Um, well, it's the idea of sharing, that uh, I'm starting to discover some wonderful things and really felt that I needed to share them. And actually, one of the, one of the books that was very fundamental in my connection with, with Jews and in my spiritual development is um, The Chosen by Chaim Patak. And there, the father of, of the main character uh, kind of talks about how it's selfish if you have a good idea not to give it to other people. And somehow that was going through my mind. But what, what happened again is that <laughs> so many things in people's lives come back to their mission. And during my, during my mission, my, my mission president said that, I, 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 he said, you're interested in the Jews, you can do anything you want, create, create bridges, learn from them. And of course he wanted me to, to teach them, which I really didn't do as much as learning from them. But that informed my study of the Book of Mormon. I noticed how much it's, it's written to the Jews, and I started to notice particular ways that seemed that things were in there for, for Jews to help them understand sorts of things. And that kept rolling around uh, in my mind. And again, working with uh, Richard Rust, learning the literary aspects of the Book of Mormon, tied into it as I'm learning the literary aspects of the Jewish approach. And I began collecting enough notes that I kind of started organizing it into a project where I said, if this is written to the Jews, what are the three main issues that, that Jews have with Christianity? One of them is Christian history. It has to do with the persecution they've endured at Christian hands. The other one is the New Testament and how they relate to that. And finally, uh, Christ himself, some issues about how he fulfills prophecies or do not does not fill prophecies. So the center one, uh, the one on the New Testament, really becomes this this uh, second book of how the Book of Mormon counters anti-Semitism in the New Testament. Thank you, Bradley, for spending this time visiting with me. I'm looking forward to discussing your latest book, Gathered in One, in part two of this interview. Thanks. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders policies or practices.